Welcome to the season of Lent. On the church calendar, there are, are two seasons that are defined by preparation. Those are Advent and Lent. Advent is, of course, the season leading up to and preparing us for Christmas. And Lent is the season leading up to and preparing us for Easter. At Easter, we celebrate the resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and ours in him. But how does a person go about preparing for the resurrection? What must happen before the resurrection? And the answer to that is that death precedes resurrection. Right? Resurrection, by definition, is bringing to life something that had died. Scrunchies are a perfect example. If you follow women's fashion trends, then you will have noticed that scrunchies are back and better than ever. They've been resurrected, as it were. And who saw that coming? In order for something to experience resurrection, it has to have first died. And if we're going to celebrate our resurrection in Jesus on Easter Day, 40 days from now, then we must first die before then. The 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter are a time set aside for us to practice death. Not the death of our bodies, but death to what the New Testament calls the flesh. Death to our sinful selves. I welcomed you to Lent this morning, but the season of Lent actually began this past Wednesday, a day we call Ash Wednesday. Those of you who were able to make it out to the service had black ash smeared across your foreheads in the shape of a cross, as you were reminded that you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's a vivid reminder of your mortality, that your days are numbered, and the window of time that you have to live for Jesus in this body of death is limited. As we mentioned last week during Transfiguration Sunday, the hope of Christianity is a transfigured world, a world that has undergone a metamorphosis and has changed. Jesus will return and he'll make everything new, beginning with your bodies. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul declares that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And at that time, you will be made perfect. The aches and pains of age will vanish. Uncontrollable emotions and desires will no longer afflict you. The disease that lingers in your body will be healed, but your will and your wants will also find healing. You will be, as Augustine states in his writings against the heretic Pelagius, non posse peccare, not able to sin. You will be unable to sin. In the resurrection, your entire being will be so transformed that you'll have a body and yet be unable to sin. All of your thoughts and actions will naturally be pleasing to God. But until then, until then, you do sin and displease God even by your words and actions. But as Augustine says, the Christian is also posse non peccare, able to not sin. The time that the Christian lives in this body of death is a time of opportunity. Christians have the opportunity to show Jesus how much they love him by choosing not to sin, despite being very capable of it. Ash Wednesday sets the timer on our lives, if you will, reminding us that we have a short window of time before death comes and Jesus makes us new in the resurrection. And these 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter are intended to be a condensed purposeful season of repentance and purification out of love for Jesus, practicing death as we prepare for resurrection. 
Lent is a season in which you renew your, your pursuit of God by shedding the weight of sin, which has kept you from running full speed after him. You break the silence that has defined your relationship with God, and you begin speaking with him regularly, communing with him throughout the day in order to fill your life with his presence. You invite him to shine his light on your darkness so that you might be transformed and find both life and freedom in him. And during this season of Lent, we're going to be working through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not assigned by the lectionary, but we will be working through this book because Habakkuk was a man, a prophet more specifically, in pursuit of God despite his circumstances. From Habakkuk, we will learn how it looks and sounds to pursue God in prayer. The entire book is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. It is prayer, and it's utterly transformative. It opens with Habakkuk complaining to and about God, but it ends with a psalm of praise and confidence in God. It opens with, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? But the book ends with, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the trees, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. That is a lot of progression in three short chapters. From an accusation of complicity in sin and violence to an expression of confidence that even if the wheels fall off, God is still worthy of praise. What happened in between there? It was a conversation with God. Habakkuk engaged God in a conversation and he found himself and his conception of God utterly transformed. And perhaps it may seem strange to you that none of our readings this morning were even from Habakkuk, but that's because Psalm 73, which was read for you earlier, is essentially a condensed version of the entire book of Habakkuk and will serve as well as an introduction to the season of Lent. In Psalm 73, we have in miniature what we will find spread throughout the entire book of Habakkuk during Lent. You see, Psalm 73 demonstrates that same radical progression that we read about in Habakkuk. The psalmist looks around and is troubled by what he sees. The righteous are wasting away, while the godless and arrogant are flourishing in the world. They have no pangs until death, and they are not in trouble as others are, or stricken like the rest of mankind. And he confesses that it makes him envious of the arrogant. Even believing that he had kept his heart clean in vain, it just doesn't add up that the godly should suffer so. The accusations of Habakkuk would fit well in this psalm. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk and the the psalmist were experiencing the discrepancy that still exists in the world today. Christians discipline themselves and say no to the indulgent pleasures of this world and are mocked, misunderstood, and and even persecuted at times for, for their reward. It can be truly confusing and distressing. Why am I giving all this up? But they also experienced a transformation of heart and mind. The psalmist begins by confessing himself envious of the prosperity of the wicked with their fat and sleek bodies, but ends with the confident resolve of one who has found in God something beyond compare. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God. It's the same, even if the wheels fall off, still I will bless you kind of resolve that we hear from Habakkuk at the end of his book. And it makes you wonder how to account for this swing, this transformation. Because wouldn't it be nice to be able to greet the wheels falling off with that kind of resolve? To have the world fall apart around you and to experience deep peace, to suffer and stand firm? How do you account for this development in Habakkuk and the psalmist? It's prayer. It's engaging God in a conversation, a real conversation, a demonstrative conversation at times even, where perhaps you're speaking out loud and walking around or gesturing with your hands instead of keeping them neatly folded. The kind of prayer that we read about Jesus offering in Hebrews 5, when in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The turn for Habakkuk and the psalmist came when they engaged God in prayer. After Habakkuk files his second complaint in God's ear, he declares, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. He's waiting for a reply. He expected a response, just like you expect your friend to reply when you ask her a question. And the turning point for Asaph came quite clearly in verses 16 and 17. He was wearing himself out trying to make sense of his experience and only found resolution when he entered into the sanctuary of God. He entered into the presence of God. And the dialogue with God that occurred there, whether spoken or silent, is what transformed him. The circumstances that drove them both to prayer didn't change. Godliness translates into suffering still to this day, while the arrogance still seemed to thrive. None of that has changed. What changed was them. They knew, as we know, that God is over all things and orders all things according to his will. Nothing is out of his control. In theological terms, we call this providence. And yet that knowledge often abandons us when we encounter suffering, slander, and cruelty, sickness, or death. We wonder with Habakkuk where God has disappeared to, and what we need is to encounter God, our God of providence. Not to understand all that he knows, but to understand that he knows all. The children of God, John Calvin writes, disburden themselves into the bosom of God, and their only desire is to acquiesce in his secret judgments, the reason of which is hidden from them. What Calvin is saying is that Christians experience a sort of shedding of their burdens when they find themselves able to agree with God despite not knowing the full content of that to which they are agreeing, and they worship God even when they don't agree with Him. We rest in God's character. But that rest only comes through prayer. We think of prayer and we think of petition, but prayer is also communion. Prayer is just as receptive as it is expressive. Hans Urs von Balthasar is a Swiss theologian. That's right, Hans Urs von Balthasar. I didn't just sneeze, that is his name. He describes prayer in this way. Prayer is dialogue, not man's monologue with God, before God. Ultimately, in any case, there is no such thing as solitary speech. Speech implies reciprocity, the exchange of thoughts and of souls, unity in a common spirit, and a common possession and sharing of the truth. All speech implies reciprocity. It is dialogue. 
And if prayer is a dialogue, then Habakkuk has struck the proper posture in prayer. He's listening. He's waiting like a watchman positioned in a high tower. We don't know how long he waits. But after speaking, he watches the horizon intently for God to show up. And I wonder if listening and invitation are a part of our prayers. Habakkuk is waiting for a response, anticipating a response. And when God does respond, Habakkuk is pushed further along in his faith. His understanding of God and his faith are broadened. What was confusing and painful and troublesome to him finds its place within a much larger story that he was unable to see initially. He was unable to see the fuller picture initially because of his humanity, because of his limitation. You know, our imagination for what is possible is severely impaired. Even the Apostle Paul describes God as the one who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even imagine. Which one of us naturally understands the ways of God? At times it seems as though Jesus himself speaks in riddles. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The disciples scratch their heads, and we do, it, we do as well. But then again, his entire life was a riddle, and something, was, something we struggle to understand. The work of Jesus Christ is so contrary to our natural understanding that we have to gather every week to remind ourselves of this truth. Jesus Christ, a, a person who is both fully God and fully man, living in the first century world, brought about our forgiveness through his wrongful death on a Roman cross. Our life comes through his death. He died our death so that we might live his life and die to ourselves. It's a beautiful and wondrous truth, but it's more than we can fully comprehend. I can put it every which way, but you only believe it if through prayer you seek God. If you stand with Habakkuk in the watchtower, openly and receptively waiting for him to expand your understanding of himself. I've said to you both at the beginning of this sermon and at the Ash Wednesday service that Lent is a season of focused, intentional repentance, of shedding those things in your life that are inconsistent with life in Jesus. But because you love them or are afraid to give them up, you have courted and allowed them to linger on in your life. We're all like Augustine, who very honestly prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. We preserve loves, little gods in our lives that have risen above their ordinary position in our hearts and need to be evicted. In Lent, we engage in that painful work of eviction, identifying what those things are in our lives that we love too much and either shed them entirely or reorient our relationship to them because they're things we cannot avoid. But the work of repentance during Lent is only half complete. If all you do is remove something from your life for a time, you have to add something to take its place. You can't just stop, you also have to seek. And I'm encouraging you to seek God through prayer, to commune with Him during this season of Lent, to dialogue with Him. Habakkuk and Psalm 73 show that prayer is transformative. Prayer doesn't just work because you get what you ask for. Prayer works because through it you learn what to ask for and how to ask. Through prayer you learn how to speak even. 
You know, what in your life is troubling you? We all have something that troubles us. Something that doesn't add up or we feel ill-equipped to handle. Something that causes us deep pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual pain. Can you identify that even now? For some of you, that will be easy because it's all you can think about. Habakkuk and the psalmist were troubled too. But their stories ended with confidence in God, a calm confidence that even if the wheels fall off and things don't improve, God is still a refuge and a place to rest. And they're inviting you to join them in communing with God, committing to the transformative reality of prayer. Don't seek God with both question and answer. Seek Him with your questions and allow Him to provide the answer. Listen as much as you speak. And somewhere deep in your soul, the Holy Spirit will begin the work of transformation, expanding your imagination for the God of the resurrection. He's a God who brings life out of death. Speak to Him and listen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.